0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. few announcements, then you may have some questions, and we can go from there. Those of you that are coming in, come on in, join us. This is the place to be. This is the place to be. A few comments about the evening programs to put them in context. For the last 20, oh, longer than that now, My wife and I have been in ministry for over 40 years, since 1967, and early in our ministry we read the the clarity both in the Bible and the writings of Ellen White on health ministry and the integration of the physical, mental, spiritual. So for many, many years we have been incorporating the spiritual principles into ministry in a variety of ways. Um, In the United States, we often would work in a city for six months, a year. We were in the Chicago area for six or seven years, six years, 1979 to 1985, and held health programs all over that city. Everything from health testing programs like the Expos, to five-day plans, to nutrition series, to stress management series. And one of the challenges that we often faced was that we would develop relationships with people in our health programs, positive relationships. People would be growing in their understanding of health. I would then hold an evangelistic meeting, and we'd invite them. Some would come, but the gap for many was so great between the health meetings and the evangelistic meetings. Um, and there are many reasons for that. They would come to the health meetings one or two nights a week. Then we'd go four or five nights a week in the evangelistic meetings. The gap was large. Uh, we would have a teaching seminar style in the evangelistic meeting. in the seminars. We would then go to a preaching style. The gap was large for many of these people. Um, another problem was we would go from pretty much straight health and very minimal spiritual to a lot of spiritual and a little health, and that gap was large for them. What you're seeing happening in the evenings here is not an introductory health program, but it is an intentional desire to provide a pastor with an opportunity to bring people to a meeting that is not doctrinally spiritual, but ministers to the heart needs in the context of the larger health. So if you have people coming to a five-day plan, a stress management program, et cetera, and you're looking for a bridge into spirituality, that's what you're seeing in the evening. The evening is not the introductory health program. Secondly, there are scores of people in the community who already are interested in spiritual things and who are absolutely amazed when they see spirituality very overtly in a health program. There are non-Adventist churches now that unapologetically, some of the largest churches in America, you take Rick Warren's church out at Saddleback, unapologetically combining health and the Bible, uh, very openly, So what what you're seeing in the evening helps us to bridge those gaps and provides that opportunity to do that. And uh, we are having some very significant experiences. Every night, you notice I go to the door. Last night, a man came out, shook my hand, and he said, Pastor Finley, tonight was life-changing for me. Another young man came out last night and said, Pastor, we need to spend some time together. Which we did, ministering to needs. So when you, in that meeting every night, people's hearts are being touched. I had a man talk to me last night. He said, "I am driving two hours per night to come to these meetings." I learned about them. I drive two hours home after the meeting at night, and he said, "I just wouldn't, I just wouldn't miss these meetings." So the Lord is working. There have the interesting. I've been doing some statistical studies. There have been about 250 to 300 non-Adventists that have registered for the meeting in one or another way. Um, they pre-registered. Some of them, most of them have come. And they're coming through the doors. They don't come every night. But there are significant numbers that are, that are there. Somebody had a question, I think. Yes, ma'am? I was wondering. Uh, can- yes, the audio is available on AudioVerse. And so uh, can you share with them how they can get this on AudioVerse? Okay. The other thing that we could do to provide you the notes. The other thing that I may try to do and this is just a matter of time, what I could do is print out the slides and use them and you could use them as your notes. So you'd get the content of the material, but you wouldn't have the graphics. You know, you'd I could print out everything and you could use that as your notes and that may work. Yeah, if that would be helpful. And here's audio verse. Uh, the slides today that I've done are really quite amateurish. I just did a, some of them are not. Some of them are professionally done. But I put this program together recently, and I haven't had our staff go over it yet. So that's why it's a little different than some of ours. Let's pray together and then go through. Father in heaven, as we launch into this very significant presentation today on the biblical foundations of the Adventist health message and the biblical foundations of really, Um, how God has understood clearly ahead of time the nature of man and how God in his infinite wisdom and his creative intelligence has just shaped and fashioned us and how he's built in every nerve and tissue of our body these health principles. We pray that you'd help us understand them clearly today. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Your church, a health evangelistic center. As you look at the Adventist church today, the question is sometimes raised, if your church closed its doors tomorrow, would the community rush to you and say, please reopen your doors? You're making such a valuable contribution to the community. When you think about the communities around us, multiplied millions of people living in our great cities, tens of thousands living in the villages of our world in the small towns. And the people that walk down the streets have deep questions within their hearts and minds. Often when I am in a new country, I spend time on the streets just walking. Many years ago when the previous Soviet Union dominated Eastern Europe, My wife and I lived in England from 1985 to 1990. The Berlin Wall did not fall until 1989. And in those years, we had three socialist communist countries in our division, Poland, Hungary, and Yugoslavia. And I was responsible for evangelism in Poland, Hungary, and Yugoslavia. And you couldn't hold any public evangelistic meetings in those countries without very, you you couldn't do it. You'd be put in jail unless you were able to negotiate with the communist government. And I remember the first time that we went to Poland and we began to negotiate with the communist government. And I had studied the statistics from Poland and noted that work productivity was significantly less with people who were smoking cigarettes. And so in meeting with the Polish officials, we said to them, we can help to increase work productivity in the nation. Now, to a socialist communist mind, that was significant. So we were invited to, and we asked them, we said, what is one of the most troubled cities in the nation? And they said to us, it's Gdansk in Poland. Gdansk was the center of the Solidarity Labor Union Movement that was under the influence of the Catholic Church and the American government rebelling strongly against the communist government. So we were invited to come to Gdańsk to see what we could do. The first thing that I did is I led a protest march through the center of the city. Now you would be surprised that I was sponsored by the communist government leading a protest march and I was the head one in the march. And I had a large cigarette that was inflated and I was holding it up and I led a protest march against tobacco through the city. People joined me and by the hundreds and we came up onto a bridge overlooking the city and I had learned in Polish, which means crush or destroy your tobacco and we threw our tobacco off the bridge into the river and marched to the auditorium where I had a five-day plan to stop smoking we protested against tobacco it was a fantastic time it caught the attention of the news media it caught the attention of the uh, entire society then my wife went down to the Polish marketplace and there was a meat shortage And the communist government was incredibly concerned because the people were rebelling against this meat shortage and we said no problem at all we will have a vegetarian cooking school. And so we had a vegetarian cooking school. Hundreds of people came, and the pro democratic forces labeled us as communists because they said, You're in collaboration with the communist government, and this is just a ruse. This is just a ploy to get people not to rebel against the government, who are who, who, the democratic forces who want to eat meat. And so we tried to assess what are the needs. After we did our health programs there in Poland for uh, a number of weeks, one day one of the Polish officials said to us, "Mr. Finlay, here is a blank piece of paper." This was the ne- this was the national government of Poland. They said, "Here is a blank piece of paper. I'm going to put my signature on this. You take this to the local government officials in Gdansk and whatever you want to do, you can do." We applied, based on that, to hold a major four-week full preaching evangelistic meeting in Gdansk, Poland. And uh, we got permission to hold it in the Leningrad Theater, a theater dedicated to Lenin. Our church had 45 members, and opening night we had 1,800 people out. I'm reminded of Ellen White's statement, nothing will open doors for the truth like medical missionary work. When we went to Hungary, the Hungarian government had an article placed in the paper, and the article said, Seventh-day Adventist evangelism is, or they didn't use evangelism, Seventh-day Adventist preaching is different than Billy Graham. They allowed Billy Graham, the Hungarian government, a permit for three nights to hold meetings there in Hungary. I followed up after Billy Graham and they gave us a permit for 28 days to hold meetings in a large public auditorium. The reason they did that is because they said, you Adventists are significantly different. You come and don't only preach to us, but you want to change the quality of life in our society. I knew when the doors opened in Russia that we needed to do something significant. We had been in Russia working for many years, and then the Olympic Stadium opened up. And we're going to hold meetings at the Olympic Stadium with 18 to 20,000 people a night. So we decided to do a massive health outreach. We invited 100 medical personnel to come with us. And we had 100 nurses and doctors. In a period of three weeks, we took 18,000 blood samples, unheard of in the Russian society, ran cooking schools and five-day plans and health expos. The health expos opened all day and hundreds of people were coming. In that series, 3,000 people, Russians, made decisions for baptism. Amen. When you analyze the needs of a community and you incorporate physical, mental, and spiritual ministries together, it makes a dramatic difference. Now, you can hold health programs without the spiritual and simply um, impact a person's health and not change their behavior or spirituality. And in fact, the possibility that their health will change will be significantly weaker. But when you incorporate physical, mental, and spiritual dimensions, it gets the attention of people. It provides the Holy Spirit the opportunity to transform them. Because in all these societies, people are deep within. They're not only asking the question, how can I get in a better diet? They're not only asking the question, how can I quit smoking? Here's the question they're asking. Who can bear my burdens? The burdens of anxiety and stress and worry. They're asked deep within their hearts, there are questions. Where can I find purpose in my life? And where can I find meaning? And Who can give us security? Where is their security? Most people are smart enough to know that someday they're going to die. Most people are intelligent enough to know, the older they get when they see their friends' names in the obituary column, that one day their friends' names are going to be in in the obituary column. They're asking the question, where can I find security? Who can bear my burdens? They sit there with their latte and coffee, and the basic problem is not that they're filling their, mi- their bodies with caffeine. It's that in their mind, they have no sense of direction. There's a great emptiness. So we're not only interested in helping them get off their caffeine so they will not have muscular tremors and a greater possibility for heart disease, but we're interested particularly in helping them find Christ, who is the one who is life eternal. Scores of people are asking who can handle my guilt and who can, where, how can the condemnation in my head be free? And they look out through their eyes into aimless, purposeless lives and they're looking for meaning and purpose in Jesus Christ. And of all people in the world, Seventh-day Adventists have been given a unique message of physical, mental, and spiritual healing. I am convinced that God knew ahead of time that in the last days of Earth's history, that the perfect message to reach this society was a message of wholeness, a message of physical, mental, and spiritual healing. I wanna go through the scriptures with you and look at the fact that God has given us great health insights in his word and go through the book of Genesis, go through the Old Testament, go through the new testament come down to the three angels messages and share with you some things that you may not have thought about before god's principles of health are throughout the bible throughout the old and new testaments physical mental emotional and spiritual health are intimately linked they are not separated health is part of god's plan for abundant living in the bible's first book genesis when you come back to creation it was god that created this world you see in Psalm 33, verse 6, 9, 8, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. When I think of creation and the fine-tuned nature of creation and how these bodies of ours were made and I think of the universe and I think of the rising and the setting of the sun and the, the composition of the air and the magnificent aspects of the sunlight, do you know that there are 1,025 1,025 different light rays in the, in, in the world. But only sunlight can produce photosynthesis. So out of 1,025 light rays, only one of them is health and healing, and that's the one that God gave to this earth. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So when God created the world, it was created by the word of His mouth. What God says is so, even if it were never so before, because when God says it, it becomes so. The the audible word that goes out of God's mouth creates tangible matter. And so, within the word of God, we find the power of creation. So God created this world by his word. This world did not evolve. When you go to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, you see those great principles of health that God built into Genesis. We go to Genesis and we find that God created the firmament with the right percentages of nitrogen and right percentages of oxygen and air is chemically designed for our breathing. It has the right viscosity for it. You go to the sunlight and everything about sunlight is healing that God placed in the universe. You look at the clear water. You go back to Genesis and you find those great principles of creation health, of choice and rest and environment and activity and trust and interpersonal relationships and you see the magnificent world that God created. God must be a God of infinite variety and incredible design and amazing love when you look at the master of his creation all through Genesis. So those principles of health, those principles of diet, those principles of sunlight and rest and fresh air, The principle of trust in God and loving relationships we find right in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1, 29, God said, I've given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth. And every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. So God gave to Adam and Eve a perfect diet. God didn't say, Adam, go jump on the back of that cow and kill it and roast it for Eve tonight. Um, But God gave them the absolute ideal diet, a plant-based diet that fruits, nuts, grains, and vegetables. And the Eden diet was, of course, this vegetarian diet. And then when the sun set on Friday night, God introduced to them the Sabbath. One of the interesting studies that I've been looking at, and I shared some of it in the meeting the other night, is chronobiology. Chronobiology, chrono of course is time, chronobiology is the study of circa septin rhythms. Septin is seven. And if you look at the way our bodies function on a cellular level, there are many rhythms in the body that function on sequences of seven. Blood, blood, for example, and urine chemicals in your body are regulated by these circa septum rhythms of seven. Um, Your blood pressure has a a circa septum rhythm of seven. In seven days, it tends to reestablish itself. Um, Heart rates, um, uh, the coagulation of blood, It's very fascinating that the Sabbath principle is written in every nerve and tissue of our bodies. I pointed out the other night that the French recognized that the seven-day weekly cycle was not tied to astronomy but tied to biblical values. The reason God gave to us a seven-day week and not a ten-day week or a five-day week is because he already had built into Adam and Eve these circus septum rhythms that were part of the rhythm of life and the rhythm of body, and God knew that as they rested on the seventh day, these rhythms that he had built in the body already on a cellular level. Chronobiology is only 15 years old, and the researchers are continuing to study it. But the more they study it, the more they say, there's something about the human body that when you rest the seventh day, you renew your physical mental energy. And it's, a, it's just an incredibly fascinating study. And when God gave Adam and Eve the Sabbath, and when they were created to rest on the Sabbath and have fellowship with him, that had biological and scientific basis to find their rest and strength in him. So health is part of God's plan in the book of Genesis. You find all those essential health features in Genesis, air, fresh air, water, environment, Um, trust, positive outlook, uh, relationship with God. When you come to Exodus, you find the same thing. Moses exhibits an understanding of disease not understood until 3,500 years in the future. And I'm going to share with you some incredibly amazing things about this. The understanding of disease that Moses had was far distant. Moses was far ahead of his time. Now, I'm going to give you some examples. Moses was educated in the University of Egypt. Egypt was the medical center of the ancient world. Never forget that. The greatest universities in the ancient world were in Egypt. And Egypt was the medical center of the ancient world. Now, here's a fascinating fact. Moses did not include the medical errors of Egypt in the Old Testament. He didn't. But he was educated in the University of Egypt, which was the medical center of the ancient world. Moses penned advanced, flawless medical practices with a conspicuous absence of the harmful practices that plagued the writings of the Egyptians. What do we know about the health practices of the Egyptians? What do we know about the medical literature of the Egyptians? What do we know about Egyptian culture? Well, let's go back and take a look at Egyptian culture. Here's the Ebers papyrus that the archaeologists have discovered. The Ebers papyrus was the leading medical textbook from which Egyptian physicians were trained, okay? There were 811 prescriptions, and I've gone over many of them, just reading the prescriptions of ancient Egypt. And I've just listed some, well, a few of them that I thought were kind of interesting. I could have listed 100 of them, but splinters. You use warm blood to place on the splinter. You take the dung of a mole and the dung of a donkey, mix it with warm animal blood, and put it on the splinter. And that will draw the splinter out. Anybody have a splinter here today? We can find some dung and mix some blood and put it on. Look, skin diseases. Egyptian, you know, skin diseases were quite common in ancient Egypt. For skin diseases, you take a hog's tooth that's the tooth of a pig, you take the dung of a cat, you take the dung of a dog, you take exit oil extract, you take berries, you pound it together and make it into a poultice and wrap it and, and take that poultice and spread it on the skin disease. Hogs, tooth, cats, dung, dog, dung, berries. Well, the berries are probably the best thing in there. You pound and make it into a poultice. Now, various treatment of disease included farmer's urine, hog dung, dry excrement of a child. If you have sore eyes, you take the urine of a faithful wife and put it on your eyes. Now, if she's unfaithful, don't take it. (laughs) This is what Moses studied in the University of Egypt, part of his education but he does not include any of that in Exodus. Why not? Because he was inspired by God with authentic health. I want to go to Egypt and look at some of the diseases of Egypt. What do we know from archaeology and history of Egypt? The arid Egyptian desert preserved the mummies' bodies, the royals, for thousands of years. And you may not be aware of it, but not one or two, but thousands of mummies have been discovered, well, well preserved. The shallow burial in the desert afforded natural mummification in ancient Egypt. It was very natural and very easy. When the archaeologists have discovered these mummies, thousands and thousands of them, many physicians have now begun to work on the mummies. And I'll show you some cat scans of mummies and things that we've discovered. The internal organs, except the heart were removed and placed in canopic jars, when these, the mummification was really interesting, and I will not go into the details of it, but I'll just tell you that the internal organs were taken out, they were placed in separate jars, and then the mummies were established. Studies done on Egyptian mummies really confirm the truthfulness of God's word. Dr. Rosalie David, who is a lead physician in Manchester University, Manchester, England, has uh, surveyed and has uh, done autopsies on thousands of mummies. And uh, Dr. Claude Ruffet x-rayed 14,000 mummies. Now, what did they discover when they were x-raying these mummies? What did they discover when they were doing autopsies on mummies? Let's take Ramses II. The archaeologists found Ramses II's mummy. They actually found that particular mummy. And here's what they discovered. It's likely that Ramses II of Egypt died of a massive heart attack because when they did the autopsy on his mummy. They found that uh, his veins and arteries were largely blocked and he died young from a heart attack. Here is an article called, Ancient Egyptians Suffered Hardening of the Arteries, CT Scans Show. The study was conceived by Dr. Gregory Thomas, a cardiologist at UC Irvine, after he read the nameplate of Pharaoh uh, Menepta in the Museum of Egyptian Antiquities in Cairo. The nameplate says that when he died at age 60, he was plagued by arthrosclerosis, arthritis, dental decay. Because arthrosclerosis is characterized by calcium in the plaques, Thomas reasoned that some evidence of disease might still be present. And so he looks at 16 mummies, and he says that they had heart disease. Why? Because the Egyptians were eating a high-fat diet, and the Israelites were not. The Egyptians' diet was much much higher in fat content so today we know that the principles that God gave to Moses in Exodus have a scientific basis when you study the placking or the hardening of the calcification of the Egyptian arteries you notice that there was a high incidence of heart disease Hat Shepshut was most likely the mother of Moses Good, uh, not the mother, but the, 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 the stepmother, the adoptive mother of Moses. And um, you know, it's very interesting. They have found her mummy. CT scans and DNA testing on Hat- Chepchit's mummy revealed obesity, diabetes, liver cancer, and death in her 50s. Death in her 50s. Why? because of the Egyptian lifestyle and diet that was different than what was given to Moses in Exodus. The autopsy of a young Egyptian man named Nocht revealed the presence of trichinosis parasite. Egyptologists now believe this was the result of eating pork. What do we see when we look at the diseases of Egypt? What do we see there? We see heart disease, cancer, arthritis, obesity, high blood pressure, rheumatism, parasites, and STD, sexually transmitted diseases. We do not find these in the Israelis. Don't find them there. Why not? Because they were following God's principles. Aren't you thankful for a God that knows our bodies and for scientific basis that the, Adventist, that the biblical health message is? It's not based on a whim or a fancy. Now, let's look at some of the prescriptions in the Pentateuch. This is probably one of the most surprising things for me because I had always taken the position when I read Exodus and Leviticus that largely what we find there did not, other than the health laws, and I'll show you some new information about clean and unclean that I think is kind of interesting anyway, but basically when I read the health laws and people would ask me about them, I would say, well, a lot of this stuff is ceremonial. But the more I looked at the some of those ceremonial principles from a different eyes, and sometimes, you know, you've read the Bible for years, you have to look at things from different eyes because we're always constantly learning and growing. The more I looked at some of this from different eyes, the more I saw it had a scientific basis. And so I want to show you some things that may surprise you. You know, blood, of course, is the liquid of life. The Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. Um, blood, of course, carries both red blood cells and white blood cells. The red blood cells are the oxygen carrying cells, and the white blood cells, of course, are the uh, d- cells that help us fight infectious diseases. Blood transports, porth- transports both oxygen and protein. The life of the flesh is in the blood. For many years, doctors believed that if you have a fever, you have to do bloodletting. And so they did bloodletting in a cu- couple different ways. So let's suppose. Chris, my good friend Chris, has a fever. His fever is 103, and I'm a doctor back in uh, Old Testament times and New Testament times, or even the Middle Ages or up to George Washington. I'd say, Chris got a fever. We've got to help him. So I would bring in my, my little uh, container of leeches, leeches that, you know, these little wiggly worm-like animals, and I would put them on Chris's skin. You ready, Chris? Put them on Chris's skin. They would leech out or draw the blood out from him. And my idea was that fevered blood would come out and reduce his temperature. But what am I doing to my friend? I'm killing the man, right? George Washington died at the hands of the bloodletting physicians. Now, this is a fascinating story, and I've read the story. Washington had a very high temperature. So the White House called the bloodletter, and they slit his veins and drained out almost a pint of blood. His temperature did, simply rose. Three hours later, they did the same thing. They called the blood letters a third time, and Washington, you can read it, said, please let me die in peace. <laughs> After Washington's death in the Washington newspaper the next day, the headlines were, our esteemed president dies in spite of the best medical help that the nation could provide. Bloodletting was the best they could provide. But the Bible says the life of the flesh is in where? The blood. So that's not simply a spiritual statement, although it is. The life of the flesh is in the blood of Christ, of course. Jesus' blood. But that also has scientific basis. Germs and sanitation. Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis in Vienna, Austria, noted that the pregnant women that came into his hospital in Vienna had a death rate of 18%. So when a woman came to the hospital, his medical students who went to deliver the baby had been working in the labs on cadavers, And so they'd often work in the labs on cadavers, dead bodies, and they would go immediately to, when a woman came to the hospital, she would now be ready to deliver a baby, and they would go from the cadaver lab without washing their hands. They would be working on the dead bodies and to go deliver the baby. The death rate was 18%. Semmelweis noted that midwife deliveries had a death rate of 3%. And Simmelweis then said, why? And he noticed that his medical students were examining cadavers before the physical exams of the pregnant women. So Simmelweis said, OK, I am going to demand that my medical students and every doctor on my staff wash their hands before the physical exam of the pregnant women. was considered crazy. The medical establishment of the day did not understand germ theory. That came in much later. We understand that today. Now, the fascinating thing about Semmelweis is this. Moses' declaration. He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean for seven days. He, it should say, shall purify himself with water on the third day and on the seventh day, then he shall be clean. But if he shall not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. I had read that and missed it. This was largely a sanitation declaration. Now, if you go back to the Bible to find out what they washed themselves with, here's what they had to do. And I never understood it. They had to wash themselves with the ashes of a red heifer mixed with hyssop, mixed with cedar oil. So I went back and said, why? Why? You burn a red heifer and you pour the water through ashes. What does that do? If you analyze it chemically, it forms an antibacterial lye soap. The ashes forms an antibacterial lye soap. That's what that does. When you mix that with hyssop, if you go back and look at any major medical textbook, if you look up hyssop, it's an antiseptic and it has an antiviral oil in it. When you mix that with cedar oil, which the Bible said, it's anti, cedar oil is antiviral and antifungal and it has anti-inflammatory properties. So what did God say to them? God said to them, okay, if you touch dead bodies, what you need to do is make this potion. And we analyze that from a chemical standpoint, it's antibacterial, it's antiseptic, it's antiviral, and it's antifungal and anti-inflammatory. God knew exactly what he was doing. God knew exactly what he was doing. So when you look at the Old Testament, this is not, these are not some ancient prescriptions that are so irrelevant by some autocratic God. They have meaning. Now look at speaking of leprosy you have the concept of quarantine. Now there are three concepts I've shown you so far. The concept of cleanliness, the concept of bloodletting, the concept of quarantine. He shall be unclean all the days he has the sore. He shall be unclean. That's only during the time when the sore is festering. He's unclean and shall dwell alone. His habitation shall be outside the camp. So you take these lepers when they have these sores that are festering, you put them outside the camp. Why? Because Leprosy is contagious. The idea of quarantine and disease was known in the Black Plague in the 1400s in Europe. People were dying by the thousands. And what happened? Churchmen who read the Old Testament came along and said, quarantine, isolate those that are dying of Black Plague, and they did. The idea of contagion was foreign to classic medical tradition. It found no place in the voluminous Hippocratic writings. The Old Testament, however, is rich for contagious sentiment, especially in regard to leprosy and venereal disease. So the idea of germ theory, the idea of isolation, the idea of quarantine, totally foreign. May I suggest to you that the Old Testament concept of medicine in the writings of Moses is 3,500 years in advance. It's incredibly in advance of its time. We find the concept in the Old Testament of unclean and and clean as well. And what do we know scientifically? Is there anything, have there been any studies done that are a little more recent on the whole idea of clean and unclean? Deuteronomy 14, you know it well. You've preached it. You've taught it. Verses 6 through 8, you may eat every animal with cloven hoofs, having the hoofs split in two parts, and that choose the cut among animals. In other words, it divides, tells you what is clean and what is unclean. The pig, of course, is unclean. Um, I looked at some, I looked, tried to discover, are there any modern studies? Levitical laws of food consumption. Um, David Mack published an article in the Bulletin of History of Medicine recently in John Hopkins University. And what he did is this. He took seedlings and he planted them in juices of various meats, fishes, and fowl. And uh, very fascinating, he was trying to discover the toxicity the, um, the less the toxicity level, the more the seedling would grow, the higher the toxicity level. And he said that clean averages, clean animals have a 91% reduced toxicity level, only a 9% toxicity, toxicity level. The unclean have a 48% reduced toxicity level or a 52% toxicity level. So the unclean would have 52% toxicity, the clean would have 9% toxicity. And he said, because this is a 91% negative toxicity level, he said in all of his research, the clean foods are far less toxic than the non-clean foods, and that has a direct result on the seedling growth. He said if you look at all of the unclean foods, the toxicity level is dramatically higher. When you look at sea creatures uh, that don't have fins and scales, the classic work that was done on this was by Dr. Bruce Halsted, the marine biologist. After the Second World War, the American government became concerned. And they were concerned about flyers that would shot down in the Pacific and had eaten uh, unclean foods and become sick. So they had Bruce Halstead, a marine biologist, Adventist, do a toxicity study. They funded him for about a year. He published a massive study. And Halstead gave them pictures of clean and unclean and sea creatures. And he produced a manual so that if flyers were shot down, they would know what they could eat and what they couldn't. After the study, Halstead said, if the book gets wet and they lose the book, just tell the flyers if it has fins and scales, they can eat it. And if it doesn't, don't eat it. Notice the warnings against fat in the Old Testament. This shall be a perpetual statute through your generations and all your dwellings. You shall eat neither fat nor blood. Um, Pork, of course, is extremely high in fat content. Uh, Fat, we know today, uh, elevates our cholesterol and lipids and uh, contributes to hardening of the arteries. Um, The aversive influence of pork consumption, Professor uh, Hans heick Reckvig biological therapy textbook this is a textbook written in 1983 for medical students and he says consumption of freshly killed pork products causes acute responses such as inflammations of the appendix and gallbladder bilinary colics acute intestinal catarrh, gastronitis with typhoid paratyphoid symptoms as well as acute eczema carbuncles etc etc. So you look at some of the studies that are coming out. These symptoms can be observed after consuming sausage meats, including salami, which contains pieces of bacon in form of fat. Um, It's interesting that after World War II, meat products, and especially pork, were difficult to purchase in Europe. The diet of most Europeans consisted of fruits, vegetables, and whole grain and breads. During this time, there was a marked decrease in cancer and heart disease. If you'll get cancer and heart disease in Europe after World War II, it's much less. Why? Because uh, the animals, of course, many of them were killed off during the war and they had to depend more on a vegetarian diet. Um, God's wellness plan. You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command to you today, that it may be well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. I love Deuteronomy 4, verse 40, because it tells God's purpose for us. God wants it to be well. So, he's built these principles in the Old and New, Genesis, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 4, verse 40, which the Lord your God is giving you. Let's look at health in the New Testament. What do we discover about health in the New Testament? The ministry of Jesus gives us a powerful example of his interest in the whole person. Jesus went about Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Jesus was a teacher, a preacher, and a healer. Christ was interested in the whole person, physically, mentally, and spiritually. Now, I want to show you something that you may not have seen or understood in the story of the woman uh, with the issue of blood. It indicates Christ's interest in the whole person. The word well or cure is used three times in the story. So the woman comes to Jesus... And I would like to look at this in Mark 5, verse 22, and I'll just grab my Bible here, Mark 5, verse 22 to 34, because this is really worth taking a look at. We're going to use as a case history of Jesus' intention, Mark 5, verse 22 to 34. So if you have your Bible, please take your Bible and turn to Mark 5, and we're going to start with verse Let's start actually with verse twenty. We'll move on in the chapter a little bit and start with verse twenty-five. Now, a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years. What was happening? This woman evidently had a menstrual cycle that did not stop for twelve consecutive years. She was. What did that mean for her in society? It means that she was bleeding from uh, bleeding. She was weak. She was emaciated. It meant that she was an outcast because if you have that flow of blood, then you are separated from all society. It meant that her children could no longer jump upon her lap. It meant that her husband could no longer hug her. It meant that she was, as an outcast of society, she was thin, she was emaciated, her clothing, no doubt, was dirty, and and she wandered from place to place. She had to scream, unclean, unclean. She was desperate and destitute verse 24 she had suffered many things for many physicians I wondered what that passage meant and so I went back and researched the kind of cures that would have been done for irregular medical uh, irregular cycle I'm not gonna describe them to you they are too gross to describe but I will tell you that woman suffered that woman suffered she suffered many things for many physicians Interestingly enough, and this is just a little aside, Mark states that. Luke, who was a physician, doesn't state it. <laughs> but Luke tells the story. She had spent all that she had and was no babe better, but rather grew worse. So here's a woman that's getting worse and worse. She sees Jesus come. She's thin. She is lost weight. She, her energy level is down. She is powerless. She's an outcast from society. She's had all these experiments to get well by the physicians, and the Bible says, and she said, if I only may touch, verse 28, the hem viscose, I'll be made well. Now, the, what I want you to see in the story is that this word, well, is used three times, but every time a different Greek word is used. The woman desired with the issue of blood, she had desired a cure for her disease. The word for well there is therapeuo, and what she's saying is, I want a cure for my disease. I want a therapy from therapeu." So she's tried everything she could. She is sick. And so she said, somebody give me a cure. Give me therapy. When people are dying of cancer today, people have elevated heart disease. Many of them, all they want is a cure. Whatever is going to cure me, I don't care. Radiation therapy, chemotherapy, I don't care. I just want a cure. I, just, I, got to get, I have to have this cure. So she is focused on the cure, okay? Now, as you go through the story, the word made well, verse 28 in the Greek is therapuo, meaning the cure for the disease or the therapy of the disease. This has to do with treatment of the disease. So what she wants is some kind of treatment of disease. She's not particularly concerned about lifestyle change, but she wants treatment. Secondly, the woman experiences what she believes to be healing from the disease as she goes on. She touches the hem of Christ's garment. And if you will continue there and look at verse 29, immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up And she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Now, here is where we have the second word. The word for healed in the Greek is aimeu, which means freedom from disease. So I want you to notice the subtle difference there. The woman is looking for a cure for her disease. So she wants a cure, external. Then she says, I am healed from my disease. People want cures. Moder- People want to be f- cured. Modern medicine focuses on disease, but Jesus focuses on something else. So, this has to do with f- physical healing of disease. Now, here's the completeness of Christ's ministry Jesus gave the woman much more than she had originally thought. Now, look, for example, at verse 34. Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. The word for made well in the Greek is zozo, which is the root word for salvation, indicating a physical, mental, and spiritual healing. The woman comes looking for a what? Cure. She exclaims she's been free from disease, but Jesus says to her, your faith has made you well which is zozo, which is the root word for physical, mental, and spiritual healing. Christ was not content to put her on a better diet. He wasn't content to put her on a weight control program or put her on a new start or a creation health or anything else without incorporating the spiritual. Christ said to her, Jesus was not willing to have this woman touch the hem of his garment and leave the same because what Jesus was interested in was not primarily Therapeuo, the cure of the disease, not primarily Iameo, the deliverance from the disease, but Jesus was interested in Zozo. Jesus was interested in a physical, mental, and spiritual healing. So In this story, in the original text of the story, We see the completeness of Christ's ministry. He will not allow people to touch the hem of his garment and leave the same. Jesus is interested in the completeness of human beings in zozo, which is physical, mental, and spiritual healing. Jesus is our creator. Jesus is our redeemer. Jesus is our sustainer. He is the one who restores wholeness, hope, and peace. And as health educators, our goal is to point people to the hope, the peace, the wholeness that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone can give. When Jesus passed through the crowds, he touched people. He spoke hope. He was interested in their physical health, their mental health, and their spiritual health. Jesus said, "I have come that they might have life and they might have it what? More abundantly. Physically, mentally, and spiritually." Following the Savior's example, the New Testament church met the needs of people in Jesus' name. And these early disciples demonstrated a concern for the entire person, physically, mentally, socially, and spiritually. May I suggest to you that if we're only interested in the physical health and mental health of people, and do not share with them the spiritual dynamics, that that is akin to medical malpractice. What is medical malpractice? It can be defined a variety of ways. But one aspect of medical malpractice is if I know a cure and I don't think you'll accept it, so I don't share it with you, I could be listed as doing medical malpractice. If there is a cure that I know is a cure of disease, but I I make a judgment that you're not interested in that cure, when I stand before every audience... You see, I've had health educators, and I'll be very honest with you, say to me, well, I don't share the spiritual because I don't want to offend anybody. You know what my response to that is? Who made you judge over those people of whether they'll accept it or whether they won't? You are making a judgment call for them. You are making an assumption that deep within the fabric of their being, they have no interest in spirituality, and that's judgment. The Bible says, judge not that you may not be judged. Now, when we conduct our health programs and we advertise a cooking school, I don't get up and give a Bible study. But we do share in the context of the um, cooking school, gentle spiritual principles, not as overtly as we're sharing here, obviously. It depends the nature of the program. When we're talking about stress management, I'm a little bit more overt spiritually. It depends on the nature of the program. But we're always sharing spiritual principles. And at the end of every health series, whatever it is, we pass out a form that allows people to check. I'd like, if, if we're, I'd like to be on your health newsletter. I'd like to receive your life in health magazine. I'd like to participate in a weight control program. I'd like to participate in a non-smoking program. I have an interest in the spiritual dimension of life, and I would like to have your Bible study guides. I'd like to attend one of your classes in which you talk about Bible prophecy. We'll give them about 10 different things they can choose from in a form called Yours for the Asking. Yours for the Asking. So every health program that we conduct, we share a form that provides that for them. Um, can you have a copy of that? Yes, you can. If you get my wife's book called um, "Light Your World for God," light your world for God. Light your world for God has the five keys in it written, and we'll check here to see if they don't. Ha- if, they, if the ABC can get some light, your oh, they'll have it tomorrow. Light your world for God. Christ method alone, you know. Elder Wilson, Neil Elder, Elder Ted Wilson, is going to launch at Spring Council this year, a um, new medical missionary program. And the other day we were having a planning meeting for it, and I suggested to him that we might title our theme, "Christ Method Alone." And I just pulled it off the top of my head. On April the 19th, I want you to pray for something April the 19th, We are bringing to the General Conference. 55 of our top leaders throughout America. We're bringing some people from supporting ministries, we're bringing some people from um, uh, our institutional ministries, Our, our general conference officers will be there, all of our vice presidents will be there, and we are gonna spend one day studying one question, one question, what strategy can the church develop that will affect every division, every union, every conference, in every church in moving the church ahead in medical missionary work. We are looking at one major question. What comprehensive strategy can the church develop? We will have thought leaders from throughout our denomination doing that. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. Incidentally, what time is it? I can finish in 15 minutes and give you some questions. I don't want to rush over this, though. Christ's method alone is going to give true success in reaching the people. The Savior did what? Mingled with men as one who desired their good. You, you don't win people by going off in the woods someplace unless you go out from the woods like Enoch did from Enoch's outpost. You don't win people if you're isolated in your church or if you're isolated even if you're in your apartment in the city. If you feel that mingling with people is going to contaminate you, like the Jews believed if they touched somebody, you know, they got contaminated. If you believe mingling with people is going to contaminate you, you miss the ministry of Jesus. Jesus mingled with people. He desired their good. He wanted to help them. In the world that we live in, unselfish desire to help other people disarms people. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.